Our scripture reading this evening is Psalm 141. We've sung the first portion of it. Now we'll read it and hear it preached. And then we will conclude by singing the last portion of it. Psalm 141, also a psalm of David, really does nicely fall on the heels of the previous psalm. And hopefully we'll see that and see the connections, but also see how Psalm 141 encourages us, and in many respects, in David's prayer, serves as a warning to us as well. This is the word of our God, a psalm of David. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defensive defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We've been slowly making our way through the Psalter. Last week with Psalm 140, another Psalm of David, David, who did not really let us know the specifics of what he was dealing with, but wrote a psalm, a prayer to God, concerned about the schemes of the wicked, but yet also expressed his confidence that God would indeed protect him. That's the hope of the church. We recognize the reality of the world and what they wish to do to the church, what they even in our lifetime seem to want to do to the church. And yet, we as Christians, like David, follow his examples, strengthened by the reality that Christ reigns supreme, ought to be confident that God will indeed ultimately protect us and bring the wicked to nothing. Well, Psalm 141 still deals with the question of the wicked. But David then shifts his concern, not for just mere physical protection and not just mere confidence that God will protect him against the wiles of the wicked, but now David is concerned about his own heart. And that's a rather mature attitude for an individual whose heart betrayed him from time to time. We don't know the timing of when Psalm 141 was composed, whether it was early in David's career or later in life. There is some language that seems to be a bit more mature. His attitude is one of humbleness, so perhaps it is later in his career. But regardless, David recognizes that though God will protect him from what the wicked may do, he's got to watch his own heart. And he knows he cannot even do that on his own strength. He recognizes he needs God's help to protect him from whatever schemes the wicked have, but he also just as much and perhaps even more needs God's help in controlling his own thought life, his actions, in response to the wicked around him. 
So what I hope to show out of this text this evening is simply this, that Christians must seek God's help against temptation to follow the world in the face of persecution. Christians must seek God's help against temptation to follow the world in the face of persecution. We're going to look at this under four headings. It sounds very un-Presbyterian, I realize. All of them begin with prayer. So if you miss it, just remember that. First, prayer for deliverance. Second, prayer for preservation. Third, prayer for judgment. And then finally, prayer for safety. So deliverance, preservation, judgment, and safety. Prayer for each of those. So first of all, prayer for deliverance. Look again at verse 1. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Now verse 1, if you look carefully, it looks and appears to be a kind of a chiasm. Now some of you know what a chiasm is, but a chiasm is a literary device. An author uses it to help aid an individual to remember something. And it, and it does it in this fashion. Usually it's structured in such a way where you have a theme and then a sub-theme, but then the sub-theme's repeated and then it comes back to the theme. That's what's happening here. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. Or excuse me, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. So you see the calling there are the main themes. He's calling out to God, and he sees that the need to be heard. Jehovah he calls to. He prays to the covenant Lord, the great I am. Hasten to me. This shows the urgency of what's in David's heart. Now, it's interesting because I can remember even preparing for this as I started to read Psalm 141, And you see this, you almost expect its enemies again. Well, that's partially true. But as we'll see, that's not where David goes at first. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice. Listen to my voice when I call to you. And that really completes that chiasm of verse 1. Now, interestingly, it's important to note that grammatically speaking, these are all commands, they're imperatives. And I understand it seems very strange to to issue commands to God. But that's not really the sense behind it. While when we think of grammar, yes, they're imperatives, but really the sense of it is that, that David is pleading with God. He's got an intense heart that is just looking for God's help. It's a reminder to us that it's okay to have such pleas to God when trials come your way. We sometimes forget this. Well, God's too busy. The things that are bothering me, the things that are weighing on me are so insignificant. Now, to be fair, there are occasions where we do make a mountain out of a molehill. But there are also certain circumstances where we somehow convince ourselves to make a molehill out of a mountain. When the time comes, we're taught all throughout the Psalter as examples to plead with God with earnest to seek his face, to plead with God, to listen to our prayer. And David continues, and in fact, even verse 2 could be considered a chiasm. It's not quite as obvious, but it's there. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. He is so desperate, as it were, that he calls upon God in his prayer to accept his prayer as quickly as he accepts righteous worship. And the beauty of such a request is, God will. 
God does. Now I recognize that from our own limited perspective, we sometimes wait and we wait and we wait. It's taking forever, like kids will say. We're just bigger kids. But the truth of the matter is, you can be assured that God does listen. He hears your prayers. He reckons them. He recognizes you who's united to Christ. He will answer them. And I realize, I want it answered now. But when he finally does, and the relief comes, and time passes, and you look back and you think, that wasn't so long, was it? It always seems worse when you're in the midst of it, and that is certainly true. But God does listen. He does hear, and he does so for the sake of Jesus Christ, your elder brother, your great high priest, who perfects your prayers. You might say, I can't pray like David. Well, you're probably right. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we have a great high priest and the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us and perfects our prayers and offers them to our Heavenly Father. That's the beauty of this. To what extent David himself knew that, I don't, I don't even know. But we know this from the truth of what the New Testament teaches. And we pray in earnest, take our prayer, O Lord. Well, this brings us then to our second point. We move to the content of the prayer, the prayer for preservation. Look now at verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with the wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. Put a guard on my mouth. It is a reminder to me, and I just find it fascinating that in this psalm, despite David's enemies, he's concerned about his, himself and his own character. Set a guard over my mouth. More woodenly or literally, it's Jehovah, a guard to my mouth. It sort of lends itself to a question as to whether or not the ESV has ha properly translated this because there's no verb in the Hebrew. Is David asking for a guard on his mouth or is he acknowledging that Jehovah is the guard to his mouth? Maybe the answer to the question is just simply yes. David understands that his mouth could sometimes get the better of him. Now that second clause in verse 3 is pretty much as the ESV has it. Keep watch over the door of my lips. For further emphasis, the mouth is a major concern, is it not? It's a major theme in the book of Proverbs. The mouth, the tongue, your lips, what you say, what you do. It's also a major theme in James. James tells us no man can tame the tongue. And David seems to understand this. And so he prays that God would guard his mouth. But David continues, it's not just his mouth, the things that he says. David recognizes that I, I can say some things that will end up damaging people, things I can't take back. But what he's concerned with, with respect to all of this, as this psalm unpacks and unfolds before us, he's concerned that he will say something that will be mistaken as being in league with the wicked. And that's very tempting to do when you're in the face of possible persecution, in the face of potential ridicule and scorn from the world. No one likes to be laughed at. No one likes to be humiliated. And it's easy 
to take a step back and avoid that and just say something that the world will like. That's David's concern here. Put a guard on my mouth so I don't do this. But in verse 4, he continues, Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in the company of men who work iniquity. It's not just the tongue, it's the heart. And we understand this because the tongue is a reflection of the heart. There are times I think about Jesus and his words in, in Luke 6 at the end of it. Out of the overflow of the heart, so a man speaks. And there are times I just hate that verse because it's so exposing. The issue is one of the heart. Don't let my heart incline toward evil. He knows how easy it is to do that and how much easier it is when the world is watching. And he's concerned about his heart, particularly so that he does not do wicked deeds. Now, the language here, when you see that second line of verse 4, to busy myself with wicked deeds, there's, there's kind of an emphatic repetition of the root word. Busy and deeds have the same root. David is really stressing this. He doesn't want anything to do with this, but he knows the temptation exists with his words, with his heart, and then as a result, his deeds to fall in with the wicked. And he's concerned about the company he keeps. Wicked deeds in the company with men who work iniquity. In other words, he doesn't want to simply follow the herd mentality. It's these wicked deeds with workers of iniquity. Let me not even eat of their delicacies. That is, don't let me sit down at their feasts. Commune with them as if I'm one of them. But it's so easy to do. David is quite concerned that he not associate with the wicked in such a fashion. You see, this is what we're seeing. The temptation to follow the world's ways to avoid the world's persecution. That's a very real thing. And you may sit there and you think, oh, no, that would never happen to me. Just think of those times in junior high school and the peer pressure. And you're caught kind of in the, in the middle between the cool kids and the kids that are usually made fun of. And, you know, you think about a couple of those kids over there that are made fun of by the cool kids, and you know you're friends with some of them. But when the cool kids come around, what do you do? What happens? Well, I would want to be accepted, so I just kind of ignore the nerdy kid, the ostracized kid. We do this all the time. David understands that if he is there in their midst, the temptation is real. And in this case, it's to avoid persecution. It's to avoid the ridicule of being a servant of God. That is a real temptation that Christians need to remember. And I dare say, many professing Christians fall into this all the time. It is very easy for them to get online on social media and opine about the sins that the world hates. They're real quick to denounce racism because the world hates racism. They're real quick to denounce any form of abuse because the world hates abuse. But try to denounce the sins the world loves. And those same people suddenly go silent. 
This happened very recently when well-known individuals happened to be in the same place with a supposed white supremacist. And they just cried out. You have evangelical Christians like yelling and screaming online, relatively speaking. This is terrible. This is disgusting. But they're silent when it comes to things like Roe v. Wade. They're silent when it comes to things like gay marriage. Well, those things are nuanced. The sins that the world loves. You can tell a lot about a professing Christian in his actual maturity, not his eloquence, his actual maturity, based on what he will say and respond to with respect to the sins that the world loves. David is concerned about that. That's his concern here. I don't want to be like this. Help me put a guard on my mouth. Keep me from this. Keep me away from all of this. Instead, what he wants is what we see in verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. It's almost as if, to put it somewhat crassly, David is just saying, look, If there's somebody righteous nearby that sees this, let him smack me upside the head to put me to my senses. Let a righteous man rebuke me. Let a righteous man strike me. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. When we think about oil, it is intended to bless. It's a symbol of blessing. Let my head not refuse it. You see, that's where the temptation comes. To avoid the world's ridicule and persecution, we might say, well, I don't want to receive God's blessing because they might think I'm a goody two-shoes or I'm some sort of weird Jesus freak. People need to understand. You know, the gospel's for everybody. And they make all kinds of excuses. David's even concerned here. Let my head not refuse the blessing. What David is praying for here and asking for a righteous man to strike him is what we see in Proverbs. You think of Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, for instance. You read this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's what David is concerned with. And and again, we see this psalm as exuding wisdom in his prayer. He recognizes, he's humble enough to recognize in himself the, the real possibility of falling into this temptation, giving into it. Let my head not refuse it. David at least recognizes in wisdom the blessing of a friend's rebuke. He knows he needs that more than he needs the world's approval. And sadly, too many Christians don't see this. This is hard for us. But Jesus reminds us, if you wish to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. We've been looking at the crucifixion of Christ in the morning service and the gruesome nature of crucifixion. But one aspect that I want to reiterate, that after all of the floggings that a person is crucified, that a person who's about to be crucified, that they endure, they then have to carry their own cross. And that cross is not like what we see put up on the walls of churches. Nice and smooth and finished and, oh, it's just, you just touch it and it just feels so nice. What a great carpenter. This was just a tree with the jagged splinters still there. And every time on your back moving, what would those splinters do? They would dig into the wounds.
It will be painful at times. Walking around in this world bearing the cross of Christ that he has for you. Take up your cross and follow him. I don't know if I can do this. That's the cry of nearly every Christian that's ever lived. Psalm 141 needs to be a prayer that's on our lips to help us through such things. A reminder to us that God hears us. God hears us in our weakness and supplies what we need to be able to endure, to be able to press on, to be Christ-like and take up our cross and follow him. Well, David continues, after asking for preservation, he moves on, our third point, prayer for judgment. At the very end of verse 5, yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. It seems like here at that last portion of verse 5, there's a sudden shift, but not really. David gets back and he recognizes he's always been praying that the Lord would do something against the wicked. We see that all throughout the Psalter. But you know, you, you do have to wonder. We pray that the Lord would do something, that he would vindicate his people, against the wicked. How empty that prayer would be if we keep siding with the wicked. This is why David begins with the guard on his mouth that God would keep him from his, his, his deeds falling into the wicked. Because he also understands that if I'm just giving lip service to God, that the wicked would be dealt with, that God would vindicate himself and his people against the wicked, and I'm siding with the wicked, what will God do to me? And see, that is a healthy, holy fear of God, knowing that he judges righteously. His prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. They're evil deeds. When they're judges, that is rulers, we think of the book of Judges, for instance, they're thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. It's a rather interesting expression. We think about these words there in verse 6, and commentators are agreed that really verse 6 and verse 7 are difficult to translate. But as difficult as they may be to translate, almost all the reputable English translations have almost the same thing. So I guess it wasn't that hard. But he speaks of their rulers. When they are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words for they are pleasant, or that they are pleasant. It could be translated either way. One commentator noted that these rulers, representative of all of the wicked, they realized too late that the words spoken were good words. They realized too late That the words were words of life. This is what happens to the wicked when they realize the truth of the gospel and the threat of rejecting the gospel. Then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. Now, if we think about this, and we bring this back to the reality of what we've seen all throughout the Psalter, where David is a type of Christ, and the reality that time and time again, people reject the sweet 
gospel of Jesus Christ. When judgment comes, they will then realize how sweet those words were. They will, like Lazarus, or the rich man and Lazarus in the parable, just beg for the tip of cool water on the tongue. Yet the chasm there will be so great that it will be impossible to do. They will then know Too many Christians today are really afraid to teach this reality to the world. We don't want to scare them. Fear God, keep His commandments. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Christ spoke about judgment more than anything else. Whatever Christ spoke, we should speak, of course, lovingly, with anticipation and hope that the Lord might use that moment to work in the person's heart. But we do the world no favors when we soften the reality of the judgment to come. When we talk about salvation as only in terms of helping me through my struggles, well, sure, the gospel can do that. But that's not all the gospel is about. That cheapens the gospel. The world needs to realize that if they don't repent, this will be true of them. They will hear the words of Christ. And at that point, they will recognize how pleasant, how sweet, and how good they were but too late. And David recognizes this. And it's also why David pleads with God to keep him from the wicked. He has the recognition of this. He understands this. As you look in verse 7, that also is a little bit difficult to translate. The sense is correct in verse 7. But, but at the end of the day, David recognizes all men go the way of their fathers. All men go the way of the earth. And just, and David uses this, this metaphor to help us, this figure of speech. When one plows and breaks up the earth, eventually it's what happens to our bones. That's just reality. Our bones, as, as they're at the mouth of Sheol or at the mouth of the grave. There's a finality to God's judgment. David recognizes this. And as we've seen throughout many of the imprecatory songs, and even as we look at that petition in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, we are praying that the kingdom of Satan would be conquered. We're also praying that the kingdom of Satan would have zero appeal to us. That's David's prayer for judgment recognizing that one day God will come and judge all the living and the dead. And we know that is the Lord Jesus Christ who will come, David's greater son. It is Christ who's been given all authority to judge the wicked and the righteous. And he will do so with no partiality. But the judge is also the one who saves. The judge is the one who saves. It is always something that makes me sit and marvel and reflect that the reality of the gospel of God's salvation is that God saves us from himself. 
to be with himself. God's judgment will come. But for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they will be saved and rescued out of that judgment because Christ himself, the judge, bore the judgment of his people. We've got all eternity to sing God's praise for his grace. Until he comes, I would encourage you to reflect on that kind of thinking often. To marvel at the wonder of God's love and grace for sinners like you and me. That the great and just judge of the earth saves sinners from himself that they would be with himself. Judgment will come. This is David's prayer, but as we close out the psalm in verses 8 through 10, we now look at our final point, prayer for safety. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Eyes toward you, O God, my Lord. And you notice there in the ESV, the spelling. You have God in all caps, and then my Lord in lower letters. What you see here in the Hebrew is Jehovah Adonai, and hence you have that spelling the way it is. And so rather than awkwardly put Lord in caps and then Lord in lowercase, they just substituted God instead. There's nothing wrong with that. But understand that you've got two great names of God right there that David addresses. The covenant God, the sovereign one. And it's my Lord, my sovereign. He appeals to him. His eyes are toward his covenant-keeping, mighty, sovereign God. His eye, these are eyes of longing. These are eyes filled with hope. These are eyes filled with truth. And we're reminded of what the author of Hebrews says. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The author of Hebrews is encouraging the same thing that David prayed. My eyes are upon Jehovah God. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You want the solution, that's where it all begins. How do I overcome the temptation to fall into the league with the, with the world? To avoid their ridicule, to avoid their suffering, to avoid their, their persecution. You do what Jesus did, and you keep your eyes fixed on him. Jesus endured it all for the joy set before him. And so David here understands this, and his eyes of hope, his eyes of anticipation, look to the Lord God. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. This concept, in you I seek refuge, it's a common enough concept. In the Psalms, the English word refuge occurs some 40 times in the ESV. And it uses a couple of different words, but, but there's a lot of similarities with all the words. The idea of covering, which sometimes is even used uh, to describe uh, what we think of in terms of propitiation. Also, shelter. Here, it's the verb, it's a single verb, seek or take refuge. It's not that the verb is seek and we're seeking a noun, refuge, the whole word it understands as seek or take refuge and leave me not defensive, defenseless. But I do think the ESV footnote there is better. Let not my life be empty. Let not my life be empty. You see, that's the reality. Without refuge in God, your life will empty and it will do so quickly. 
That's the contrast that David is making. He understands that if he does not take refuge in God, if he does not take refuge in his Savior, his life will drain out quickly. He reiterates his prayer, in you I seek refuge, leave me not defenseless. Then he goes back to the wicked. Keep me from the trap they have laid for me and from the snares of evil doers. Keep me, that is, guard me from the trap that they have laid for me. Now, there's a lot of semantic repetition that's actually happening in this verse, and therefore emphasis. You've got something like this, um, an expression, the hand of the trap is really what you see there in the Hebrew, as well as a verb laying a snare. So you've got this double meaning that's there to, to bring out poetic emphasis. And from the snares of evildoers. So there are three different expressions in this short expression, in this short verse that describes the reality of the snares that are around David. They're serious. It's as if they're everywhere. And that's what the wicked do. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is just go on social media from time to time and watch how atheists try to trap Christians all the time in their speech. That's not a new thing because of social media. That's been going on since, since the fall. David knows that their traps are everywhere, and I really wish Christians would understand that, that the traps of the wicked are everywhere, trying to entice you with bait until you fall into the trap. But oh, they make it so shiny, like fish drawn to bait. And there are some fish, they, they see the twinkle of the hook, and that attracts them. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evil doers, doers of iniquity. But it's not just protection and safety that he prays for. He goes one step further, let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Now, this may sound a bit flippant, but it does help to reinforce David's point here. Some of us grew up on cartoons. And you think about Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Wile E. Coyote constantly wanted to get that roadrunner for a nice dinner. And the whole cartoon, one cartoon after the other, is just demonstrating how Wile E. Coyote had all these schemes, had all these traps, and what always happened, the trap turned back on him. He would set up this rope, he'd have bird seed out so that the roadrunner would come, he'd have it all measured out, hike up that anvil, he would drop it, and where would the anvil hit? Not on the roadrunner, on his own head. He would set up dynamite to try to blow him up. Nope, it would blow him up. That's what this is. Their own traps fall on them. They get ensnared into their own nets. David here prays for it. Solomon, in the early parts of Proverbs, indicates with wisdom, that's what happens. They end up lying in wait for their own blood. They prey on themselves. But David prays that as that happens, that I just simply pass them by safely. And you think back of those cartoons, that's what always happened with the Roadrunner. There's Wiley Coyote in his net, or with an anvil on his head, or having had dynamite blow up, 
And the roadrunner just looks at him and speeds off. That I might pass by safely. We as Christians need not be naive. We shouldn't be overly cynical. I will admit that tends to be my default attitude. But we also can't be naive. We need to understand that the world hates Christ. They hate him. And as such, they hate us. The temptation is real for us to fall in league with the wicked to avoid their ridicule, their persecution, to save our job. Whatever the case may be, David's prayer ought to be our prayer because, brothers and sisters, the persecution will not let up. It will continue to get worse. But thanks be to God that we have a God who hears us, who knows us, who sanctifies us, who equips us. We have that inexhaustible supply of grace that Christ has purchased for us. You know, we we think about the fact that that grace is divided out among all believers. That's not the best way to express it because it's as if you have a loaf of bread and you cut it up in pieces and you get a part, you get a part. No, we all get all of grace. We get all of the Spirit's power at work in us to strengthen us, to equip us that we would indeed take up our cross and follow Christ. Pray in earnest, brothers and sisters, not just for your own soul, but for the persecuted church, for the church at large, especially the lukewarm Christians that are trying so hard to be friends with the world. It doesn't work. That they would stand firm on the truth of the gospel. They would stand firm on the truth of what God requires. They would stand firm on the reality that Jesus Christ is not merely a savior. He's not our therapist to make us feel good, though he certainly does that. He's our king. And he reigns supreme. All of us will face this temptation. All of us probably have already. What happens when we fall into this temptation? What happens if we give into it and we side with the world? The simplest thing to do is repent and confess your sin. You pray to the Lord and confess, Lord, I was weak. I was more concerned what they might say or think, what they might do to me. When I realized that at the end of the day, if you belong to Christ, No ultimate harm will befall you. I mean, really, what's the worst that the world can do? And you might say, well, they could kill me. Well, that's true. But if they do, you'll be with Jesus. And if they do and you're with Jesus, guess who gets the victory? And guess who gets the blessing of the victory? The Lord Jesus Christ will sustain his people. Pray for continued strength. Pray that he would uphold you. Pray that you would have the courage to stand on the truth. Pray that you have wisdom. Not every situation requires you to speak. That takes wisdom, to know when to speak and when not to speak. But above all, pray that you keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the author of and perfecter of your faith. That is, he will strengthen your faith. He will equip you more and more to be able to stand for the kingdom of God. This is a reality that Christians face. And I dare say many Christians need to take Psalm 141 to heart. That we would avoid the temptation of falling in league with the world simply because they threaten us. I know that sounds easy. 
It's not. David knew that it wasn't easy, which is why he prayed. So you and I should as well. And remember Jesus' words to his disciples concerning them, concerning all of his people. No one will snatch you from the Father's hand. No one. That's what should give you courage. God will keep that which he bought. God will keep those whom he bought. You who have faith in him can be assured the Lord Jesus Christ has you. You need not fear. Yes, it'll be hard. But his grace is sufficient for you. May the Lord bless the church with such courage to be able to stand for the cause of Christ and his righteous rule. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word and how it reminds us of the reality that Christians face. As we look at David's words, that he was humble enough to recognize the temptation that exists to simply fall in line with the world, to avoid pressure, persecution, ridicule. Lord, may this prayer be ours. Indeed, set a guard over our mouths. Don't let our hearts incline to any evil and busy ourselves with wicked deeds in their company. Lord, let a righteous man strike us. Let him rebuke us. May we recognize that it is a blessing. It is oil on our head and let us never refuse it. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. May we take refuge in you. Father, we do give you thanks that you are the one who sustains us and protects us. But equip us, Lord. Equip us to stand firm. Equip us and give us the courage to share the gospel with the lost. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.